0: Page 1,088. In those days Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. Our song of preparation is number 306. We'll sing all the stanzas of number 306. We'll stand to sing. As I mentioned, the text for the sermon is the passage that we read, Luke 1, 39 through 56. I'm not going to read that again now, but if you hold your Bibles open and follow along, that will be helpful. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, did you notice... The detail that Luke gave us about what Mary did when she left, uh, after rather, after Gabriel had come to visit her and she left her house. He says, Right after Gabriel had left her, Mary got ready and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. In haste, she hurried up and she went to visit Elizabeth. Well, why would she have done that? Why would she have hurried off? To visit Elizabeth? Why was she so eager to see her? And so that she left as soon as she could, as soon as Gabriel had left. Well, some of the commentaries say because Mary wanted to talk to someone about this wonderful news that she'd received from Gabriel. But she couldn't talk to Joseph about it yet. She couldn't talk to her neighbors about it yet. She was free. She could talk to Elizabeth because of what Elizabeth had done, in uh, what the Lord had done in Elizabeth's life. Well, Mary stayed with Elizabeth for three months, we read. So they definitely had plenty of time to talk together about what Gabriel had said to them and what the Lord was doing in their lives and for his people. But that's not why Mary went with haste to visit Elizabeth. She didn't hurry to Elizabeth's home just to have some woman-to-woman conversation. Look at what Elizabeth says there in verse 45. Blessed is she who has believed that there would be fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Those words, the Bible says, were inspired by the Holy Spirit. And in those words, Elizabeth tells us, the Spirit tells us, why it was that Mary hurried, went with haste to visit Elizabeth. It was because she believed what God had said to her, what Gabriel had told her. She hurried to see Elizabeth to have her faith in the promise confirmed by the sign that Gabriel had given her. I'm going to preach God's Word to you this afternoon under the theme, God's promise to Mary is confirmed and confessed. First, Mary receives a sign to confirm her faith, and second, Mary sings a song to magnify the Lord. God's promise to Mary is confirmed and confessed. Mary receives a sign to confirm her faith. Mary sings a song to magnify the Lord. Mary's last words to Gabriel, as we have them in verse 38, tell us that she believed what he had promised her. But along with that promise, the Lord had also given Mary a sign, a sign that would confirm her faith, that would confirm his promise. And that's what God is like. That's what we see God doing. God knows how hard it can be for us to believe his promises in the face of what we call reality. He knows how hard it is for us to live by faith in his word from day to day in the real world. But surprisingly, when the Lord recognizes the weakness of our faith, the struggle that we have to believe him, he's not offended by that, you might say. He doesn't reject us on account of it. When we confess in the Belgic Confession in Article 33 why we have the sacraments and and what the sacraments are intended to do, this is how the article starts out. We believe that our gracious God, mindful of our insensitivity and weakness, has ordained sacraments to seal His promises to us. We should have no doubts about God's promises. We should have no, no questions about whether He's going to do what He promised to do. And, of course, God recognizes that as well. That's what God's expectation is, really, that we would have no doubts or questions. But he understands our weaknesses. He even understands our insensitivity. He even understands the hardness of our hearts. And so he adds to his word the sacraments to encourage our faith and support our faith and nourish our faith. We say again, this is what God always does. It's what he has been doing since he first announced the gospel to Adam and Eve. He gives his people signs. He gives us something that we can see, something we can taste, something that is is tangible, touchable, feelable, you might say. He gives us something that will uh, confirm his promises to help us believe. He gave Noah the rainbow. He gave Abraham circumcision. He gave Israel the Passover and the fiery cloud. He gave Israel the the bronze serpent in the wilderness. You can think of many other instances in the New Testament when John talks about the miracles that Jesus performed while he was on earth. He calls them signs. And what he means to communicate that way is to say Jesus performed those miracles to help people believe what he was saying to them, what he was claiming to help them believe in Him, put their trust in Him. And when people refused to to trust in Him, when they refused, you might say, to use those signs, He criticized them sharply. He condemned them because they refused to believe in spite of the signs that He had given them. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For the mighty works that were done in you had been done entire and inside and if they if these miracles i performed i had performed them in, in pagan countries they would have repented long ago sitting in sackcloth and ashes in other words god wants us to take advantage of he wants us to use the signs that he gives us In fact, he commands us to use our baptism. He commands us to use the celebration of the Lord's Supper to encourage our faith. He commands us to reflect on these things, to remember these things, to consider what he's telling us, what he's confirming to us in these signs. So that our faith is encouraged, so that our our strength to fight against sin is encouraged. Our hope in the gospel is sustained. And when Gabriel said to Mary, Behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her, who was called barren, then he was very literally saying, he was saying, Behold, go and look, go and see Elizabeth. Go and see the sign that God is giving you, Mary, to show that he really is at work in Israel and in you in these days. And because she believed that promise, she got ready in a hurry. She made haste and went there as quickly as she could. Not because she needed proof before she would believe. Signs don't work that way. Signs don't create faith. Signs only encourage those who believe. Again, you only have to think about the Gospels. There were lots of people who saw all the miracles Jesus performed and still they wouldn't believe in him. The point is that Mary went to see Elizabeth because she believed what Gabriel had told her. And God had given her a sign. And so in faith, she went to to use that sign to see the sign God had uh, provided. And that really is what faith is, isn't it? Faith is seeing what God is doing. This is really what your baptism and and the Lord's Supper point to. They say to you, look at what God is doing in Jesus Christ. Look at what God has promised you. Look at what God is actually accomplishing in you through faith in Jesus Christ. And that's how you live by faith by focusing your, your eyes on what God is doing. To do that, of course, you need to see and you need to look beyond what you see with these eyes. What we see with these eyes, what we experience in this world, always gives us so many reasons to doubt. What we see of ourselves gives us all kinds of reasons to doubt. So-called reality, always. Always. Makes it seem to us that what God has promised is foolishness. What we expect from God, or at least what God says we can expect from Him, there is no hope in that. There are so many reasons you could say to give up your faith in the gospel and to give up living by faith. Who can believe the gospel? Who can be satisfied with promises? when he just looks at the world, the reality of the world around him. Who can believe that God is in control? Who can believe even that there is a God, a a God that is spoken about in the Bible, a God who is sovereign, and a God who is wise, and a God who is good? When he listens to the news, Who can settle for a life of faith? That is to say, who can settle for denying himself and and living a life of service when you can see very plainly the way of the world is saying to you, the way to have life, the way to have security is to serve yourself? There are plenty of reasons in Mary's life, in Israel's situation, for Mary to doubt God's promises. Just think of what Mary would have seen even and what she would have experienced even while she was on her way to Elizabeth's home, what she would observe of Israel's situation. Everything she would have seen would have spoken about the oppression of Rome, the domination of Rome, and the humiliation of Israel. Everything she saw would have said to her, God has forsaken us. The power, I mean, this this is reality. The power is in Rome, not in Israel. The house of David is is extinguished. What could ever come from from the house of David? The people she was going to see, Zechariah and Elizabeth, faithful believers, but living in absolute obscurity. Luke doesn't even tell us the name of the town they lived in. It's just a town somewhere in the hill country of Judah. That's the situation. That's how it was for the remnant, for for the few in Israel who still believed. They're not the famous ones. They're not the powerful ones. They are unknown, and they live in unknown places, places you've never heard of. And yet Gabriel had promised Mary, God is working among us again. And God is working there, in that obscure life, in that obscure place. And if you go there, you'll see it. And Mary went to uh, Elizabeth because she believed him. She entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Again, you have to pay attention to the details of what is here and what is not here. Because Mary didn't first tell Elizabeth about Gabriel's visit. Mary didn't first tell Elizabeth what Gabriel had said to her and what had happened. She didn't tell Elizabeth, you know what? I received a visit from an angel, the angel Gabriel, and he told me I'm going to have a baby, a baby boy, and that baby is going to be the Messiah. She didn't say to her, Elizabeth, he told me the Holy Spirit's going to come upon me and the power of the Almighty is going to overshadow me and I am going to conceive a son who will actually be the Son of God. Luke says she only greeted Elizabeth. But Elizabeth already knew it all. The Holy Spirit had already told her everything. And Luke says you need to see how this worked. Mary believed what Gabriel had told her. And when he offered her a sign uh, from God to confirm his promise, Mary accepted the sign. She went to see what God had promised her she would see. And because she believed, the Spirit used the sign to confirm her faith. Through Elizabeth, he, he gave Mary a message that proved that everything Gabriel had said was true. First, Elizabeth was in the sixth month of her pregnancy, so Mary could already see that she was pregnant. Second, she didn't have to explain anything to Elizabeth. She knew everything already. Everything Mary was planning to tell her. She called Mary the mother of my Lord. She didn't only know that Mary was going to have a baby, she knew that the baby was the Son of God. She could only have known that if God himself had told her. Oh, she said, as soon as I heard the sound of your greeting, as soon as that sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Well, oh, by the sixth month, Elizabeth knew that babies move and they kick in their mother's wombs. And she says, I know what that feels like, but that was no kick. My son recognized you. My son knows that you are the mother of my Lord. And then she says, blessed is the fruit of your womb. In other words, Mary, what God promised you has already happened to you. You have conceived. You are already carrying the Savior in your womb. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior for He has looked on the humble estate of His servant." For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. Who would have called Mary blessed until that moment? Who would have described her as living a blessed life, being a blessed person? Nobody, absolutely nobody. But because of this, she says, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. To magnify something is to make it bigger. When we're little, we like to play with magnifying glasses. At least we did. Maybe kids play with other things these days, but we played with magnifying glasses. When we get older, we need magnifying glasses to read our books or magazines or or maybe to do some some needlework. When you magnify something, you make it appear bigger than it really is. And if we think about Mary's words in her song in a very logical way, we might say, well, this makes no sense. How is it possible to make God bigger than He really is? We can't add to God's greatness. We can't take away from it either as far as that goes. got nothing to do with us in that regard. And of course, on that level, that's true. But this is what Mary says. My soul magnifies the Lord. It's an expression of worship. It's really what we're doing every time we worship the Lord. That's why we need to come here from Sunday to Sunday. That's why we need to, to step aside, you might say, from the reality of the world around us. We don't, we don't escape that reality. We live in the midst of it. We don't deny that reality. We recognize the truth of it. What I mean to say is that we step aside and we have this particular time in worship to magnify the Lord, to make the Lord great. He sang from Psalm 34 where David says, Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt His name together. In Psalm 69, he says, I will praise God's name in song. I will magnify Him with thanksgiving. So what does that actually mean to magnify the Lord? Again, we say we can't literally make God any greater than He is. But when we use a magnifying glass, we're not really making the thing that we're looking at any larger either. You might say we're making it big in our eyes. We're making it big in our sight. And that's sort of what this means. When Mary says, my soul magnifies the Lord, she means, my soul sees, my soul confesses, and my soul rejoices in the greatness, in the majesty, in the glory of the Lord and what He does. She is confessing that she sees how great God is. That's a question you could ask yourself, to see whether you are living by faith in God. How big is God in your eyes? How big is God in your thoughts? How big is God in your attitude toward your life? The way you think about your place in the world? The way you think about the things that happen in this world? The way things go in this world? The things that happen to you? How big is God in your eyes? And that question really is asking, is he really your God? Do you really believe in him? It's a question we have to ask ourselves on a very personal level. With respect to the church, too. This is what determines, this is what decides how much comfort I take home with me after I've heard the gospel. This is what determines how much comfort I'm able to draw from the promises God makes in the gospel and confirms to me in my baptism and confirms to me when I celebrate the Lord's Supper. This is what determines how much comfort I get from the promise that I belong with body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. This is what determines whether I live in fear or in faith and in confidence. Is God great in my eyes? Who is big in your sight? Who has the most to say about your life, about how your life goes? Who has the most to say about about what happens in this world, in your way of looking at things? It is very easy for us, it's absolutely natural for us to imagine that people, experts and politicians and the the men and women of big business and big money hold our lives, hold our future, hold our happiness, our security in their hands. Somehow it seems like in this time of a pandemic that's especially true. We're all tuned in every day. What are the experts saying today? What's the count today? What is the government going to do today? How is it going to affect my business? How is it going to affect my life? We seem to hang on it. We seem to depend on it. What does that expert say? Well, but that expert says something else. As though that's the great reality. As though these are really the big people in our lives. And in our eyes, in our sight, God seems very small. God seems irrelevant. God doesn't seem to be in the picture at all. And so his promises don't help us. But when we magnify the Lord, when we look at our lives and we look at the situation our country is in and we think about the future in the light of God's Word, in in the light of everything we know about God from His history, from His actions, when God is big in our eyes, then we see everything and we experience everything in faith. And that means we really see things as they are, not just as they appear. When Mary sings here, she's not just thinking about her own situation, she's thinking globally. She's thinking universally, we could say. Gabriel had said to her, nothing will be impossible with God. And when Mary says, my soul magnifies the Lord, my soul makes God great, she's saying, I believe that. God is so big and God is so great that nothing will be impossible for Him. Nothing. In my mind's eye, says Mary, in my assessment of my life and the situation of God's people in the world and uh, uh, now and in the whole future, God is big. And Caesar Augustus and the Roman government are small. And our hated enemy, Herod, is small. And every obstacle that stands in the way of the salvation of God's people, is small because God is great. He has looked on the humble estate of his servant. Mary uh, stands here in the opening chapters of Luke as as a kind of example, we might say, as a representation of the remnant of the poor believing people in Israel. She speaks about her humble estate. Certainly it was a humble estate. But she speaks on behalf of others. But she says, God is so big, He even knows me. He knows us. God is so big, He's heard our prayers. When my mother and father taught me to pray and taught me to put my trust in the Lord, they quoted to me from the Psalms. Though the Lord is high, He looks on the lowly. Who is like the Lord, our God, who is seated on high, who looks far down on the heavens and the earth? The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and His ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord, in spite of what you see, in spite of what you think is is true, the face of the Lord is against those who do evil, to cut off the memory of them from the earth. Now, says Mary, I know that that's all true. You know this, and you see this when you confess how big the Lord is. Pretty well every commentary on Luke points out that Mary's song is not very original because she borrows, she uses all kinds of expressions that you can find even word for word in in different places, different psalms and songs in the Old Testament. And if, for example, you would compare Mary's song with the song of Hannah in 1 Samuel 2, you would instantly see these songs are almost identical. And in a way that might surprise us. Why would she sing these old words? Why would she borrow, you might say, those old lyrics? Isn't God doing something absolutely new in sending the Savior, Jesus Christ? Something unique in all of His action? Of course, the coming of Christ was the climax, was the high point of God's work of salvation. But Mary says, I I borrow these words. I take up again those old words, those old songs. Because God is acting now the way He has always acted. God is saving us the way He has always saved us. By sovereign grace, only by His power. I'm really singing the same song that believers have sung throughout the ages. And as we read Mary's song, we need to see the past and at the same time the future through Mary's eyes. On the one hand, Mary is reciting what God has done for his people in the past. She looks back. His, this is how he acts. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. That's God's record throughout the ages. Do you see that when you look at church history? you see that when you look at world history, when you look at your own history? That God has mercy on those who fear him? That God has always been good to those who worshipped him? you see God's work in history? Mary says he has shown his strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. And she would have thought maybe about, for example, the people who built the Tower of Babel. In their pride, wanting to reach up to God and be with God by their own power, their own accomplishment. She might have been thinking about the Egyptians who in their pride enslaved God's people. Goliath who mocked God's people. The Babylonians who destroyed Jerusalem and took the people off to exile. She would have been thinking of events in history where her own, his own people, God's own people, became proud and were brought down. He scattered them too. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. Those are words directly from Hannah's song. And so that's a thought maybe from from Hannah's time, from Hannah's experience. When When God gave Israel what they had asked him for, they asked for a king like the nations, like the kings the nations had. And God gave that to them. He gave them Saul, who was a proud man. Saul who came to see the throne as as a means to, to gain personal power instead of being a pathway to serve God's people. And God brought Saul down and exalted David who was just a humble shepherd boy. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. Mary as presumably a poor person isn't singing about getting revenge on her enemies, getting revenge on the rich that she resents. She's not standing up here for all the oppressed people in the world, like a a socialist or a communist. She's not singing that she's one of the 99% and she's so happy with the notion that the 1% are going to get their comeuppance. She is magnifying the Lord because she says what I was taught and what I believe, what my parents taught me when I was growing up is true. She says when we sing about God's work in history, we find we are singing a refrain. We're singing the same words over and over again throughout the ages. Because God acts in the same way again and again throughout the ages. And repetition is the mother of learning. God always acts this way because God is always revealing Himself and God wants us to learn to know Him. God wants us to understand from history, from what He's done in history, the truth about Him and our freedom to rely on Him regardless of the circumstance. God repeatedly gives us that message because he wants us to learn. Children, don't be overwhelmed by the glory and the power of men. Children, don't be intimidated by the world around you. Don't be tempted either by what the world has to offer you. Live by faith. Understand history because history is where you see how big God is. And history is God teaching you a simple lesson. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Mary isn't only looking back to what God did in the past. In fact, that might not be the the main theme or the main perspective of her song. She's looking forward. She's talking about the future. She's prophesying. And if you read the prophets, you'll see they do the same thing that Mary does here. They talk about events that God foretells that that are going to happen in the future. They talk about those events as though they have already happened. They talk about something that hasn't happened yet, something still in the future, but they talk about it as if it's all accomplished. God has done this. God has done that. And they speak that way as though a future event is past because they are so sure, because it is so sure that God will do what he's promised. And Mary sees all of that history coming to a climax. And she sees the whole future already worked out as though it has all already happened. In what God has done for her. In the conception of the child in her womb. In his conception by faith, she sees all of God's promises being fulfilled. She sees by faith God coming with that judgment that he had promised throughout the centuries. Coming to judge the nations and to vindicate those who have put their trust in him. She sees that in the child in her womb, our faith is vindicated. Because as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1, no matter how many promises God has made, all the promises of God find their yes in Christ. Jesus at this moment, of course, had not been born, yet he hadn't died, he hadn't risen, he hadn't ascended into heaven. But Mary says... God has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. The sign of the child in her womb was the sign for Mary that all God had promised would be true. And the sign that God gave Mary is the sign God gives to us, the child that Mary was already carrying in her womb reveals how great God is, shows us how big God is in human history and in our lives. In the coming of Christ, God spells his name out in huge letters. And he gives us this sign to help us believe to help us live in faith in this world, in this time, as we wait for him to come again. She says to us, the future of the world, your future, my future, has already been worked out by God in Christ. That's what Jesus shows us in the book of Revelation. And Mary says, magnify the Lord. When you hear the gospel of your salvation, make the Lord great in your eyes. Mary is really singing the old song of Psalm 137. Delight yourself in the Lord. Make Him the object of your affection, the object of your desires, the focus of your hope. Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in Him, and He will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light, and your justice as the noonday. That psalm is written particularly to people who are oppressed, who, who witnessed and experienced injustice. And The psalmist says, this is wisdom, be still before the Lord and wait patiently for Him. Wait for the Lord, keep His way, and He will exalt you to inherit the land. You will look on when the wicked are cut off. I have seen, says the psalmist, a wicked, ruthless man spreading himself like a green laurel tree. But he passed away, and behold, he was no more. Though I sought him, he could not be found. There are mighty people, there are prosperous people, there are influential people who seem to dominate your life, who seem to hold your life in their hands. The same thing will happen to them as happened to this man the psalmist speaks about. They will pass away and they will be no more. And though you look for them, you will not be able to find them. By way of contrast, mark the blameless. Behold the upright, for there is a future for the man of peace. But transgressors shall be altogether destroyed. The future of the wicked shall be cut off. The sign that all of this is true is the conception of the Son of God in the womb of the Virgin Mary almost 2,000 years ago. Amen. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we acknowledge before you that so often you are not great in our eyes. We do not magnify you. But what seems great in our eyes are human power and human glory. And so we find ourselves often discouraged, often confused, often shaken in our resolve to live by faith. And We find, we sometimes find that the of the gospel, the, the word we read in our homes, what we have been taught, what we confess here in church, that that brings us no real comfort. That seems to change nothing because we are overwhelmed by our circumstances, because we go by what we see and not what is promised. We go by what we see and not by faith because we do not magnify you. Father, we pray that as we are in the midst of a season of celebrating the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ, we may be able to go far beyond the worldly celebration which, if it pays any attention to Christ at all, sees him only as a little baby in a manger. We pray, Father, that together with our children, together with our loved ones as congregation, in these days we will rejoice that you have revealed your glory in Jesus Christ, that you have Confirmed your promises in him. Promises to generations gone by. And promises made also to us. You give us hope for our present and hope for our future. You reveal to us the truth about our lives and the course of the history of this world. Father, we thank you for the insight. We thank you for the wisdom, the understanding we receive when your word is proclaimed to us. And we pray that we will live by faith in this word. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.